Part three of Tale One of Five Tales by John Galsworthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by David Wales. There are some natures so constituted that, due to be hung at ten o'clock, they will play chess at eight. Such men invariably rise. They make especially good bishops, editors, judges, impresarios, prime ministers, money-lenders, and generals. In fact, fill with exceptional credit any position of power over their fellow-men. They have spiritual cold storage, in which are preserved their nervous systems. In such men there is little or none of that fluid sense and continuity of feeling known under those vague terms speculation, poetry, philosophy. Men of facts and of decision, switching imagination on and off at will, subordinating sentiment to reason. One does not think of them when watching wind ripple over cornfields or swallows flying. Keith Darrant had need of being of that breed during his dinner at the Tellison's. It was just eleven when he issued from the big house in Portland Place, and refrained from taking a cab. He wanted to walk, that he might better think. What crude and wanton irony there was in his situation! To have been made father-confessor to a murderer! He! Well on towards a judgeship! With his contempt for the kind of weakness which landed men in such abysses, he felt it all so sordid, so impossible, that he could hardly bring his mind to bear on it at all. And yet he must, because of two powerful instincts, self-preservation and blood loyalty. The wind had still the sapping softness of the afternoon, but rain had held off so far. It was warm, and he unbuttoned his fur overcoat. The nature of his thoughts deepened the dark austerity of his face, whose thin, well-cut lips were always pressing together, as if, by meeting, to dispose of each thought as it came up. He moved along the crowded pavements glumly. That air of festive conspiracy which drops with the darkness onto lighted streets galled him. He turned off on a darker route. This ghastly business! Convinced of its reality, he yet could not see it. The thing existed in his mind, not as a picture, but as a piece of irrefutable evidence. Larry had not meant to do it, of course, but it was murder all the same. Men like Larry, weak, impulsive, sentimental, introspective creatures, did they ever mean what they did? This man, this Wallen, was by all accounts better dead than alive. No need to waste a thought on him. But, but crime, the ugliness, justice unsatisfied, crime concealed, and his own share in the concealment, and yet brother to brother. Surely no one could demand action from him. It was only a question of what he was going to advise Larry to do. To keep silent and disappear? Had that a chance of success? Perhaps, if the answers to his questions had been correct. But this girl, 
Suppose the dead man's relationship to her were ferreted out could she be relied on not to endanger Larry? These women were all the same, unstable as water, emotional, shiftless pests of society. Then, too, a crime untracked, dogging all his brother's afterlife. A secret following him wherever he might vanish to, hanging over him, watching for some drunken moment to slip out of his lips. It was bad to think of, a clean breast of it? But his heart twitched within him. Brother of Mr. Keith Darrant, the well-known King's Counsel, visiting a woman of the town, strangling with his bare hands the woman's husband. No intention to murder, but a dead man, a dead man carried out of the house, laid under a dark archway. Provocation, recommended to mercy, penal servitude for life. Was that the advice he was going to give Larry tomorrow morning? And he had a sudden vision of shaven men with clay-colored features, run, as it were, to seed, as he had seen them once in Pentonville, when he had gone there to visit a prisoner, Larry, whom as a baby creature he had watched straddling, whom as a little fellow he had fagged, whom he had seen through scrapes at college to whom he had lent money time and again, and time and again admonished in his courses. Larry, five years younger than himself, and committed to his charge by their mother when she died, to become for life one of those men with faces like diseased plants, with no hair but a bushy stubble, with arrows marked on their yellow clothes. Larry? one of those men herded like sheep, at the beck and call of common men, a gentleman, his own brother, to live that slave's life, to be ordered here and there, year after year, day in, day out. Something snapped within him. He could not give that advice. Impossible. But if not, he must make sure of his ground, must verify, must know, this glove lane, this archway, it would not be far from where he was that very moment. He looked for someone of whom to make inquiry. A policeman was standing at the corner, his stolid face illumined by a lamp, capable and watchful, an excellent officer, no doubt. But turning his head away, Keith passed him without a word. Strange to feel that cold, uneasy feeling in presence of the law. A grim little driving home of what it all meant. Then suddenly he saw that the turning to his left was Barrow Street itself. He walked up one side, crossed over, and returned. He passed number 42, a small house with business names printed on the lifeless windows of the first and second floors with dark curtained windows on the ground floor? Or was there just a slink of light in one corner? Which way had Larry turned? Which way under that grisly burden? Fifty paces of this squalid street, narrow and dark and empty, thank heaven. Glove Lane, here it was, a tiny runlet of a street. And here, he had run right on to the arch, a brick bridge connecting two portions of a warehouse, and dark indeed. "'That's right, Governor. 
That's the place." He needed all his self-control to turn leisurely to the speaker. "'Ere's where they found the body. Very spot leanin' up here. They ain't got him yet. Lightest's me lord." It was a ragged boy holding out a tattered yellowish journal. His lynx eyes peered up from under lanky wisps of hair, and his voice had the proprietary note of one making a corner in his news. Keith took the paper and gave him tuppence. He even found a sort of comfort in the young ghouls hanging out about there. It meant that others beside himself had come morbidly to look. By the dim lamplight he read, Glove Lane Garroting Mystery. Nothing has yet been discovered of the murdered man's identity. From the cut of his clothes he is supposed to be a foreigner. The boy had vanished, and Keith saw the figure of a policeman coming slowly down this gutter of a street. A second's hesitation, and he stood firm. Nothing obviously could have brought him here save this mystery, and he stayed quietly staring at the arch. The policeman moved up abreast. Keith saw that he was the one whom he had passed just now. He noted the cold, offensive question die out of the man's eyes when they caught the gleam of white shirt-front under the opened fur collar. And holding up the paper, he said, "'Is this where the man was found?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Still a mystery, I see. Well, we can't always go by the papers, but I don't fancy they do know much yet about it. Dark spot. Do fellows sleep under here?' The policeman nodded. "'There's not an arch in London where we don't get em sometimes.' "'Nothing found on him, I think I read?' "'Not a copper.' pockets inside out. There's some funny characters about this quarter. Greeks, Italians, all sorts. Queer sensation, this, of being glad of a policeman's confidential tone. Well, good night. Good night, sir. Good night. He looked back from Borrow Street. The policeman was still standing there, holding up his lantern, so that its light fell into the archway, as if trying to read its secret. Now that he had seen this dark, deserted spot, the chances seemed to him much better. Pockets inside out? Either Larry had had presence of mind to do a very clever thing, or someone had been at the body before the police found it. That was the more likely. A dead backwater of a place, at three o'clock, loneliest of all hours, Larry's five minutes' grim excursion to and from might well have passed unseen. Now it all depended on the girl, on whether Lawrence had been seen coming to her or going away, or whether, if the man's relationship to her were discovered, she could be relied on to say nothing. There was not a soul in Borrow Street now, hardly even a lighted window, and he took one of those rather desperate decisions only possible to men daily accustomed to the instant taking of responsibility. He would go to her and see for himself. He came to the door of forty-two, obviously one of those which are only shut at night, and tried the larger key. It fitted, and he was in a gas-lighted passage, with an oil-clothed floor and a single door to his left. He stood there, undecided. 
She must be made to understand that he knew everything. She must not be told more than that he was a friend of Larry's. She must not be frightened, yet must be forced to give her very soul away. A hostile witness, not to be treated as hostile. A matter for delicate handling. But his knock was not answered. Should he give up this nerve-wracking, bizarre effort to come at a basis of judgment? Go away and just tell Lawrence that he could not advise him. And then what? Something must be done. He knocked again. Still no answer. And with that impatience of being thwarted, natural to him, and fostered to the full by the conditions of his life, he tried the other key. It worked, and he opened the door. Inside all was dark, but a voice from some way off, and with a sort of breathless relief in its foreign tones, said, "'Oh, then, it's you, Larry. Why did you knock? I was so frightened. Turn up the light, dear. Come in.' Feeling by the door for a switch in the pitch blackness, he was conscious of arms around his neck, a warm, thinly clad body pressed to his own, then withdrawn as quickly, with a gasp, and the most awful, terror-stricken whisper, "'Oh! Who is it?' With a glacial shiver from his own spine, Keith answered, "'A friend of Lawrence. Don't be frightened.' There was such silence that he could hear a clock ticking, and the sound of his own hand passing over the surface of the wall, trying to find the switch. He found it, and in the light which leaped up, he saw, stiffened against a dark curtain, evidently screening off a bedroom, a girl standing, holding a long black coat together at her throat, so that her face, with its pale brown hair, short and square-cut and curling up underneath, had an uncanny look of being detached from anybody. Her face was so alabaster-pale that the staring, startled eyes, dark blue or brown, and the faint rose of the parted lips, were like color-stainings on a white mask, and it had a strange delicacy, truth, and pathos, such as only suffering brings. Though not susceptible to aesthetic emotion, Keith was curiously affected. He said gently, "'You needn't be afraid. I haven't come to do you harm. Quite the contrary. May I sit down and talk?' and holding up the keys, he added, Lawrence wouldn't have given me these, would he, if he hadn't trusted me. Still, she did not move, and he had the impression that he was looking at a spirit, a spirit startled out of its flesh. Nor at the moment did it seem in the least strange that he should conceive such an odd thought. He stared around the room, clean and tawdry, with its tarnished gilt mirror marble-topped side-table, and plush-covered sofa. Twenty years and more since he had been in such a place. And he said, "'Won't you sit down? I'm sorry to have startled you.' But still she did not move, whispering, "'Who are you, please?' And moved suddenly beyond the realm of caution by the terror of that whisper, he answered, "'Larry's brother.' She uttered a little sigh of relief, which went to Keith's heart, and, still holding the dark coat together at her throat, 
came forward and sat down on the sofa. He could see that her feet, thrust into slippers, were bare. With her short hair and those candid startled eyes, she looked like a tall child. He drew up a chair and said, You must forgive me coming at such an hour. He's told me, you see. He expected her to flinch and gasp, but she only clasped her hands together on her knees and said, Yes? Then horror and discomfort rose up in him afresh. An awful business! Her whisper echoed him. Yes, oh yes, awful! It is awful! And suddenly, realizing that the man must have fallen dead just where he was sitting, Keith came stock silent, staring at the floor. Yes, she whispered, just there. I see him now, always falling. How she said that, with such a strange, gentle despair. In this girl of evil life, who had brought on them this tragedy, what was it which moved him to a sort of unwilling compassion? You look very young, he said. I am twenty. And you are fond of my brother? I would die for him. Impossible to mistake the tone of her voice or the look in her eyes, true deep Slav eyes, dark brown, not blue as he had thought at first. It was a very pretty face. Either her life had not eaten into it yet, or the suffering of these last hours had purged away those marks, or perhaps this devotion of hers to Larry. He felt strangely at sea, sitting there with this child of twenty, he over forty, a man of the world, professionally used to every side of human nature. But he said, stammering a little, I, I, I have come to see how far you can save him. Listen, and just answer the questions I put to you. She raised her hands, squeezed them together, and murmured, Oh, I will answer anything. This man, then, your, your husband, was he a bad man? A, a dreadful man. Before he came here last night, how long since you saw him? Eighteen months. Where did you live when you saw him last? In Pimlico. Does anybody about here know you as Mrs. Wallen? No. When I came here, after my little girl died, I came to live a bad life. Nobody knows me at all. I am quite alone. If they discover who he was, they will look for his wife? I do not know. He did not let people think I was married to him. I was very young. He treated many, I think, like me. Do you think he was known to the police? She shook her head. He was very clever. What is your name now? Wanda Levinska. Were you known by that name before you were married? Wanda is my Christian name. Levinska, I just call myself. I see. Since you came here? Yes. Did my brother ever see this man before last night? Never. You had told him about his treatment of you? Yes. And that man first went for him. I saw the mark. Do you think anyone saw my brother come to you? I do not know. 
He says not. Can you tell if anyone saw him carrying the, the, the thing away? No one in this street. I was looking. Nor coming back? No one. Nor going out in the morning? I do not think it. Have you a servant? Only a woman who comes at nine in the morning for an hour. Does she know, Larry? No. Friends, acquaintances? No. I am very quiet. And since I knew your brother, I see no one. Nobody comes here but him for a long time now. How long? Five months. Have you been out today? No. What have you been doing? Crying. It was said with a certain dreadful simplicity, and pressing her hands together, she went on, He is in danger because of me. I am so afraid for him. Holding up his hand to check that emotion, he said, Look at me. She fixed those dark eyes on him, and in her bare throat, from which the coat had fallen back, he could see her resolutely swallowing down her agitation. If the worst comes to worst, and this man is traced to you, can you trust yourself not to give my brother away? Her eyes shone. She got up and went to the fireplace. Look, I have burned all the things he has given me, even his picture. Now I have nothing from him. Keith, too, got up. Good. One more question. Do the police know you because, because of your life? She shook her head, looking at him intently with those mournfully true eyes, and he felt a sort of shame. I was obliged to ask, do you know where he lives? Yes. You must not go there, and he must not come to you here. Her lips quivered, but she bowed her head. Suddenly he found her quite close to him, speaking almost in a whisper, Please do not take him from me altogether. I will be so careful. I will not do anything to hurt him. But if I cannot see him sometimes, I shall die. Please do not take him from me. And catching his hand between her own, she pressed it desperately. It was several seconds before Keith said, Leave that to me. I will see him. I will arrange. You must leave that to me. But you will be kind? He felt her lips kissing his hand, and the soft, moist touch sent a queer feeling through him, protective, yet just a little brutal, having in it a shiver of sensuality. He withdrew his hand, and as if warned that she had been too pressing, she recoiled humbly. But suddenly she turned, and stood absolutely rigid, then almost inaudibly whispered, Listen, someone out, out there! And darting past him, she turned out the light. Almost at once came a knock on the door. He could feel, actually feel, the terror of this girl beside him in the dark, and he too felt terror. Who could it be? No one came but Larry, she had said. Who else, then, could it be? Again came the knock, louder. He felt the breath of her whisper on his cheek. 
If it is Larry, I must open." He shrank back against the wall, heard her open the door and say faintly: "Yes, please. Who?" Light painted a thin moving line on the wall opposite, and a voice which Keith recognised answered: "All right, miss. Your outer door's open here. You ought to keep it shut after dark." God! That policeman! And it had been his own doing, not shutting the outer door behind him when he came in. He heard her say timidly, in her foreign voice, Thank you, sir. The policeman's retreating steps, the outer door being shut, and felt her close to him again. That something in her youth and strange prettiness, which had touched and kept him gentle, no longer blunted the edge of his exasperation, now that he could not see her. They were all the same, these women, could not speak the truth. And he said brusquely, You told me they didn't know you. Her voice answered like a sigh, I did not think they did, sir. It is so long I was not out in the town, not since I had Larry. The repulsion, which all the time seethed deep in Keith, welled up at those words. His brother, son of his mother, a gentleman, the property of this girl, bound to her body and soul by this unspeakable event. But she had turned up the light. Had she some intuition that darkness was against her? Yes, she was pretty with that soft face, colorless save for its lips and dark eyes, with that face somehow so touchingly, so unaccountably good, and like a child's. I am going now, he said. Remember, he mustn't come here. You mustn't go to him. I shall see to him tomorrow. If you are as fond of him as you say, take care, take care. She sighed out, yes, oh yes, and Keith went to the door. She was standing with her back to the wall, and to follow him she only moved her head that dove-like face with all its life in eyes which seemed saying, Look into us, nothing we hide, all, all is here. And he went out. In the passage he paused before opening the outer door. He did not want to meet that policeman again. The fellow's round should have taken him well out of the street by now, and turned the handle cautiously. He looked out no one in sight. He stood a moment, wondering if he should turn to right or left, then briskly crossed the street. A voice to his right hand said, Good night, sir. There, in the shadow of a doorway, the policeman was standing. The fellow must have seen him coming out. Utterly unable to restrain a start and muttering, Good night, Keith walked on rapidly. He went full quarter of a mile before he lost that startled and uneasy feeling in sardonic exasperation that he, Keith Darrant, had been taken for a frequenter of a lady of the town. The whole thing, the whole thing, a vile and disgusting business. His very mind felt dirty and breathless. His spirit, drawn out of breath, had slowly to slide back before he could at all focus and readjust his reasoning faculty. 
Certainly he had got the knowledge he wanted. There was less danger than he thought. That girl's eyes! No mistaking her devotion. She would not give Larry away. Yes, Larry must clear out. South America, the East, it, it, it did not matter. But he felt no relief. The cheap, tawdry room had wrapped itself round his fancy with this atmosphere of murky love, with the feeling it inspired, of emotion caged within those yellowish walls and the red stuff of its furniture. That girl's face, devotion, truth, too, and beauty, rare and moving in its setting of darkness and horror, in that nest of vice and of disorder, the dark archway, the street Arab with his gleeful, then ain't got him yet, the feel of those bare arms around his neck, that whisper of horror in the darkness, above all, again, her child face looking into his, so truthful. And suddenly he stood quite still in the street. What in God's name was he about? What grotesque juggling amongst shadows? What strange and ghastly eccentricity was all this? The forces of order and routine, all the actualities of his daily life, marched on him at the moment and swept everything before them. It was a dream, a nightmare, not real. It was ridiculous that he, he should thus be bound up with such things so black and bizarre. He had come by now to the Strand, that street down which every day he moved to the law courts, to his daily work, his work so dignified and regular, so irreproachable and solid. No, the thing was all a monstrous nightmare. It would go if he fixed his mind on the familiar objects around, read the names on the shops, look at the faces passing. Far down the thoroughfare he caught the outline of the old church, and beyond the loom of the law courts themselves. The bell of a fire engine sounded, and the horses came galloping by, with the shining metal rattle of hooves and hoarse shouting. Here was a sensation, real and harmless, dignified and customary. A woman flaunting round the corner looked up at him and leered out, "Good night." Even that was customary, tolerable. Two policemen passed, supporting between them a man the worse for liquor, full of fight and expletives. The sight was soothing, an ordinary thing, which brought passing annoyance, interest, disgust. It had begun to rain. He felt it on his face, with pleasure, an actual thing, not eccentric, a thing which happened every day. He began crossing the street. Cabs were going at furious speeds now that the last omnibus had ceased to run. It distracted him to take this actual, ordinary risk run so often every day. During that crossing of the Strand, with the rain in his face and the cab shooting past, he regained for the first time his assurance, shook off this unreal sense of being in the grip of something, and walked resolutely to the corner of his home turning. But passing into that darker stretch, he again stood still. A policeman had also turned into that street on the other side, 
Not? Surely not! Absurd! They were all alike to look at, those fellows. Absurd! He walked on sharply and let himself into his house. But on his way upstairs he could not for the life of him help raising a corner of a curtain and looking from the staircase window. The policeman was marching solemnly about twenty-five yards away, paying apparently no attention to anything whatever. End of Part 3 Part 4 Keith woke at five o'clock, his usual hour, without remembrance. But the grisly shadow started up when he entered his study, where the lamp burned and the fire shone, and the coffee was set ready, just as when yesterday afternoon Larry had stood out there against the wall. For a moment he fought against realization, then, drinking off his coffee, sat down sullenly at the bureau to his customary three-hour study of the day's cases. Not one word of his brief could he take in. It was all jumbled with murky images and apprehensions, and for full half an hour he suffered mental paralysis. Then the sheer necessity of knowing something of the case which he had to open at half-past ten that morning forced him to a concentration which never quite subdued the malaise at the bottom of his heart. Nevertheless, when he rose at half-past eight and went into the bathroom, he had earned his grim satisfaction in this victory of willpower. By half-past nine he must be at Larry's. A boat left London for the Argentine tomorrow. If Larry was to get away at once, money must be arranged for. And then at breakfast he came on this paragraph in the paper. Soho murder. Inquiry late last night established the fact that the police have discovered the identity of the man found strangled yesterday morning under an archway in Glove Lane. An arrest has been made. By good fortune he had finished eating, for the words made him feel physically sick. At this very moment Larry might be locked up, waiting to be charged, might even have been arrested before his own visit to the girl last night. If Larry were arrested, she must be implicated. What, then, would be his own position? Idiot to go and look at that archway, to go and see the girl. Had that policeman really followed him home? Accessory after the fact. Keith Darrant, King's Counsel, Man of Mark. He forced himself, by an effort which had something of the heroic, to drop this panicky feeling. Panic never did good. He must face it and see. He refused even to hurry, calmly collected the papers wanted for the day, and attended to a letter or two before he set out in a taxicab to Fitzroy Street. Waiting outside there in the gray morning for his ring to be answered, he looked the very picture of a man who knew his mind, a man of resolution. But it needed all his willpower to ask without tremor, Mr. Darrant in? To hear without sign of any kind the answer, He's uh, not up yet, sir. Never mind, I'll go in and see him. Mr. Keith Darrant. On his way to Lawrence's bedroom, in the midst of utter relief, 
he had the self-possession to think, this arrest is the best thing that could have happened. It'll keep their noses on a wrong scent till Larry's got away. The girl must be sent off too, but not with him. Panic had ended in quite hardening his resolution. He entered the bedroom with a feeling of disgust. The fellow was lying there, his bare arms crossed behind his tousled head, staring at the ceiling, and smoking one of many cigarettes whose ends littered a chair beside him, whose sickly reek tainted the air. That pale face, with its jutting cheekbones and chin, its hollow cheeks and blue eyes far sunk back. What a wreck of goodness! He looked up at Keith through the haze of smoke and said quietly, Well, brother, what's the sentence? Transportation for life, and then to be fined forty pounds? The flippancy revolted Keith. It was Larry all over. Last night, horrified and humble, this morning, don't care, and feather-headed. He said sourly, Oh, you can joke about it now. Lawrence turned his face to the wall. Must. Fatalism? How detestable were natures like that? I've been to see her, he said. You? Last night. She can be trusted. Lawrence laughed. That I told you. I had to see for myself. You must clear out at once, Larry. She can come out to you by the next boat, but you can't go together. Have you any money? No. Well, I can foot your expenses and lend you a year's income in advance. But it must be clean cut. After you get out of there, your whereabouts must only be known to me. A long sigh answered him. You're very good to me, Keith. You've always been very good. I don't know why. Keith answered dryly, Nor I. There's a boat to the Argentine tomorrow. You're in luck. They've made an arrest. It's in the paper. What? The cigarette end dropped. The thin pajamaed figure writhed up and stood clutching at the bedrail. What? The disturbing thought flitted through Keith's brain. I was a fool. He takes it queerly. What now? Lawrence passed his hand over his forehead and sat down on the bed. I hadn't thought of that, he said. It does me. Keith stared. In his relief that the arrested man was not Lawrence, this had not occurred to him. What folly! Why, he said quickly, an innocent man's in no danger. They always get the wrong man first. It's a piece of luck, that's all. It gives us time. How often had he not seen that expression on Larry's face, wistful, questioning, as if trying to see the thing with his, Keith's, eyes, trying to submit to better judgment. And he said, almost gently, Now look here, Larry, this is too serious to trifle with. Don't worry about that. Leave it to me. Just get ready to be off. I'll take your berth and make arrangements. Here's some money for Kit. I can come round between five and six and let you know. Pull yourself together, man. As soon as the girls joined you out there, you'd better get across to Chile. The further the better. You must simply lose yourself. I must go now. 
if I'm to get to the bank before I go down to the courts. And looking very steadily at his brother, he added, Come, you've got to think of me in this matter as well as of yourself. No playing fast and loose with the arrangements, understand? But still Larry gazed up at him with that wistful questioning, and not till he had repeated, Understand? Did he receive yes for an answer? Driving away, he thought, Queer fellow! I don't know him, shall never know him, and at once began to concentrate on the practical arrangements. At his bank, he drew out four hundred pounds, but waiting for the notes to be counted, he suffered qualms. A clumsy way of doing things. If there had been more time, the thought, accessory after the fact, now infected everything. Notes were traceable. No other way of getting him away at once, though. One must take lesser risks to avoid greater. From the bank he drove to the office of the steamship line. He had told Larry he would book his passage. But that would not do. He must only ask anonymously if there were accommodation. Having discovered that there were vacant berths, he drove on to the law courts. If he could have taken a morning off, he would have gone down to the police court and seen them charge this man. But even that was not too safe, with a face so well known as his. What would come of this arrest? Nothing, surely. The police always took somebody up to keep the public quiet. Then, suddenly, he had again the feeling that it was all a nightmare. Larry had never done it. The police had got the right man. But instantly the memory of the girl's awe-stricken face, her figure huddling on the sofa, her words, I see him always following, came back. God, what a business! He felt he had never been more clear-headed and forcible than that morning in court. When he came out for lunch, he bought the most sensational of the evening papers. But it was yet too early for news, and he had to go back into court no whit wiser concerning the arrest. When at last he threw off wig and gown, and had got through a conference and other necessary work, he went out to Chancery Lane, buying a paper on the way. Then he hailed a cab, and drove once more to Fitzroy Street. End of Part 4